0: Hey, y'all. My name is Annie Reynolds. I'm a fourth year, and I'm going to be reading our passage from Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how we had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life.
1: Talk about the Spirit's collision with an unlikely convert. Two points we'll keep in front of us tonight as we look at this briefly, uh, and then I want to pray for us. The first is respect the influence of culture. It has a monumental impact on you. Respect the influence that your culture has on you. The second point we'll keep in front of us, expect the redemption of your culture. If you're a Christian or if you're one who is seeking Jesus or interested in Jesus, expect him to redeem your culture. He's gonna get up in your business. He's gonna fiddle with it. So expect it, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I pray that you do that tonight. Help us to see in the subconscious ways, in the hidden ways, in the subterranean ways, the way that our culture blinds us and shapes us. And I pray that you would take us all by the hand and usher us into a new culture, a gracious culture, a loving culture, a culture where we move towards each other, move towards people who are different than us. Be with us tonight, we pray. And Don't let this series, I pray, just be a time when we're looking back 2,000 years at what you used to do. Let us see you as in Elizabeth's life. Let us see you in October on the move in our lives. We need this, and so we ask it of one who is gracious, one who is powerful, one who is able and willing like you. Amen. A quick note before we get into this, what Annie just read and what you have in front of you, and I hope you keep looking back down at as we talk is primarily a historical event. So the primary purpose of this passage being in our Bibles is simply to say, this happened. That's it. It's like Pentecost or the resurrection account. It's not primarily about you and me. What principles can we get out of this? What help for living? Primarily, it's simply announcing this thing happened and it changes everything. It's kind of like Pentecost. That happened, changes everything. The Spirit's been poured out. Well, this was the moment that God's grace kind of the dam burst. Imagine, like, a huge, like, one of the great lakes. It's all dammed up, and the dam bursts, and all of that water flows over all the land now. This is the moment historically when the gospel leaves the boundaries, the borders of God's ethnic people, Israel and the Jews, and starts to splatter indiscriminately. On Gentiles, who is us? We're the Gentiles. We're the people at the ends of the earth, the the pagans who had never heard this, who never believed it. We're these people. You would not be, if you're a Christian, I don't say this for, for effect, you literally would not be a Christian were it not for the events Annie just read about. Simply wouldn't be one. If that dam had not burst and the spirit had not pushed that water all over the face of the earth, you might go to Israel to visit and watch what God is doing with his people over there. You wouldn't have no part in it. You would not be invited into it. But you are, and it has changed many of us. So only in a secondary way will we look at what this means for us, but keep those two things in mind. Now, to get into this, um, I never really realized how important culture was until I got married to Anna, and we moved in and started living in the same house together. We started to realize the importance of culture clash and differences when we were dating. If you're dating or you have dated or you even live with another human being, you know the importance of culture. Um, But kind of Ann and I get married. We kind of start our married life together and all these little things that I never even realized were things became big things. I'm like, she's loading the dishwasher wrong. That's not how you load a dishwasher. Everybody knows you put these cups over here and stack the plates that way. And she's like, he does laundry wrong. You're not supposed to wait until it's like overflowing basket. You keep ahead of it. The way we cook, the way we shop, the way we drive, the way we do Christmas, whether you wrap your presents or you leave them unwrapped under the tree, those little things that we never even realized were things become big things, big things when you get married or when you live with another person, same house, roommate. And it's not like, if if you've met my wife or seen my wife, it's not like we grew up in terribly different cultures, both raised in the church, both great families, great parents, um, very similar backgrounds. So I'm not even describing two people coming at opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm talking about two people who are like pretty identical, living together in the culture clash that we experienced, which I think ups the ante of how important culture is. Culture affects every minute detail of your life, everything. Everything. It affects not just what you think, but how you think. It affects not just what you dream about but how you dream about it. It affects why you do what you do, why you're working towards the goals you're working towards. It affects how you're getting there. It affects what you think is good and what you think is bad. It affects what makes you angry and what makes you happy. And at a more molecular level, it affects how and what you eat. Some of you grew up in homes where you're like healthy eaters and you eat birdseed and it drives people like me crazy. It affects how and where you spend your money or if you save money and if you get angry at people who spend your money. It affects whether you want your kitchen when you get home at the end of a day of class to be like a Gilmore Girls episode where there's a thousand questions coming at you with banter. How was your day? What was it like? Tell me all about it or whether you want it to be a quiet place where everybody has their space. The culture you grew up in affects all of those things and everything else. Are you a talker during movies or do you want to murder people who talk during movies? (laughs) Culture is the reason you react the way you do. Do you leave for RUF at 7.50 or at 8.15? Culture (laughs) shapes how you relate to time. Culture, culture affects everything about a person, the big stuff, the little stuff the stuff you're aware of and the stuff you're not here's where it gets complicated i'm not aware of my culture my home culture my native culture the culture of my family i'm not aware of it but you are and i'm aware of yours and you're not we've been raised in it. it's like a fish being aware that he's swimming in water what's water you're, it's just there. You never even realize it's a thing. When you begin to be in a relationship with another person, you live with them, you get married to them, they see it and they're like, you load the dishwasher incorrectly. We don't know it's there. It's subconscious, it operates in the background. And the reason why is because we were never taught culture, we caught culture. Maybe you've heard it described that way. Culture is something you catch, it rubs off on you over decades in a subtle way. And so we're not aware of it. It's a really big deal. We all have it, it has a powerful influence on us, few of us are aware that it has any influence on us, and so clashes happen. I think you're with me, right? We all have roommates. Now, everything I'm talking about so far is really minor. What happens when you widen the cultural difference? Like we're talking about me and Anna, or maybe you and your boyfriend or girlfriend, or you and your roommate who have a lot in in common. What happens when you widen that gap? And then you talk about the cultural chasm that exists between being a guy and being a girl. What happens when you uh, widen it even further, the cultural chasm between being raised middle class uh, versus being raised lower class, or being raised rich, being raised poor? What happens when you widen it even further to ethnic or racial differences? cultural differences. What happens when you get into denominational differences? These things take on a weightier uh, consequence in our life. It's no longer just a quibble about the dishwasher, but you see the whole world differently, right? When you get into these wider cultural chasms. Now, here's the problem. We haven't even talked about sin yet, Sin is a cosmic vandal. It all, all it ever does is take good stuff and warps it into terrible, destructive stuff. All it ever It's the punk with the spray paint can. All it ever does is ruin good stuff. I haven't even mentioned it yet, and we're already in the deep end of the pool with culture and culture clash. So what happens when sin takes your home culture, your native culture, and gets its ugly, dirty hands on it and begins to twist it and warp it? Well, what happens is we begin to absolutize our home culture or normalize it which is which means this it's not just that you and i are different culturally that we load the dishwasher differently it's that i load it right and you load it wrong it's not just that you and i are distinct we're all unique special people it's that i'm better than you and i do things the right way and you do them the wrong way or i'm normal and you're not i'm clean and you're not my tribe my squad my friend group is kind of godly or whatever and yours is not that's what sin begins to do to these things and this is where we get back to our passage culture both the good parts of culture we were talking about but also the way sin warps culture is the reason the christians in jerusalem reacted to what should have been awesome news right wouldn't that have been awesome news it's like the missions report at church on a sunday morning and it's like listen to what happened the Gentiles have received and believed that the true and living God is Jesus, just like we believe. But they don't respond that way. Because in their, in their estimate, the Gentiles are from this other culture. They're different. They're outsiders. They're, and again, not just different different, but they're bad different. We're better than them different. And so they criticize an apostle who has just come home. Uh, with this great news that the Gentiles have received. I mean, this is ancient prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets always said that when the Messiah comes, the nations will believe. Every tongue and tribe will believe. Well, it's happening. And Peter's getting crap from it back home. Now, Jerusalem at that time is only filled with Christians who grew up Jewish, right? It's only people who came out of a Jewish ethnic background and it's not by accident that the two things they take issue with is that Peter went inside a Gentile's house, he went in, and that he ate. Those are two big no-nos uh, for a Jew. To go in a Gentile's house and then to go eat with them. So how did these little itty-bitty things like eating and going in someone's house become so big? Um, they got Culture gets spiritualized too. Russ Whitfield, he's one of the higher-ups in RUF. He's a pastor in D.C. as well. He did summer conference a few years ago. You might have heard of him and, and love him. He said that we smuggle our cultural preferences into Christ's gospel. We smuggle my personal, native, cultural preferences into the gospel, and now all of a sudden, God's on my side, right? I have the authority of God, of Christianity, of the Bible on my side. We spiritualize it, and it becomes inflated like this and again remember it's unnoticed the christians in jerusalem when they came back from peter didn't unlike other times when the jews got together to conspire and kind of get their story straight and plan how they're going to oppose the gospel there's no mention of that at all they just kind of knee-jerk in an unnoticed subconscious way they're like wait a second Yeah, yeah yeah about the conversions you ate you had dinner with them peter come on you went inside their house What happened when you were inside? We smuggle our cultural preferences into the gospel. And we begin to cluster around these cultural differences with each other. Birds of a feather flock together, right? They've done studies. I I don't want to sit and look at you right now and try to prove this. But I was looking, Huffington Post a few months ago had an article that said there's been four studies recently all randomized at different college campuses. And basically, the study was they had a ton of people come into a room and mingle for a little while. And then the study was, um, hey, can you find a seat? We're about to begin. There was no study. The study was looking at where people sat down. That was it. So they're like blabbing on about some fake study that's not happening. Meanwhile, the sociologists are in the corner taking notes about who sat next to who. Did you know that people with glasses have a much higher statistical Uh, likelihood of sitting with other people with glasses. It might not be proved tonight. Don't call me on it. If you have a tattoo and piercings, the likelihood of you sitting next to someone with tattoos and piercings is dramatically higher. Same length of hair is also a correlation they found. Gender through the roof. Guys sat with guys, girls sat with girls. I know you're all looking around you right now to see if you're a statistic or you're the winner who broke it. The point is this. We don't just have this subconscious culture. We don't just carry it around with us. It doesn't just shape our expectations and how we do life. It also shapes who you notice when you walk into a room and who's invisible to you. It shapes who you want to be friends with and who you think that would be too hard. We don't have anything in common. Make sense? We flock together. We sit together. We all know <laughs> We all know the guys in RUF tend to sit with the guys in RUF and the girls in RUF tend to sit with the girls in RUF. We all know the seniors like to hang out with the seniors and the freshmen like to hang out with the freshmen. It just seems like brute sociology. Culture is behind all of these things. And it even, let me take it one step further. It's not just that we have this culture that it's subconscious, that, it, that sometimes it gets warped and that we spiritualize it. It's not just that we flock together with, with birds of a feather. It's not just that I just notice people who tend to look like me and be like me. It's also that we begin to think, our tribe, our culture, begins to think that God is just like us. We begin to think that Jesus talks just like I do, prays like I do, speaks English like I do, has the same emphases like I do, and hobby horses like I do, and we project our culture onto God himself. Now, a few of us were in Israel together this summer, and uh, Rachel threw a couple of these on the slide. A few years ago, the the Vatican asked Catholic dioceses from across the, the world to send in a mosaic depicting the nativity. This is at a church in Nazareth, I don't know if you can see it, but it's Korea on the left. The diocese of, you know, Seoul or something in Korea sent that mosaic. Jesus looks like a little Korean boy. And uh, the Scots sent in that one. And lo and behold, Jesus looks Scottish. Well, they had African uh, nations up there, Central American nations, Russians, Croatians. And guess what? Jesus always looks like whatever country sent the mosaic. It's not just art. It's not just the books you grew up reading, the little Bible story books. It's deeply in our minds. We think God is on our team. He's in our tribe. He's in our home culture. And that's another way that when we hear stories about these things or we look at Christians or people who just look, feel, act, talk, relate to God in a really different way than us, we think it's bad, bad kind of different. Not good kind of different. And it's a big, big problem. I mentioned that the, Jew, that the Christians in Jerusalem were all of a Jewish background, how did they get so fixated on these things? And how did differences become superiorities? How did external variables become, I'm better than you? Or you're different than me in a bad way? Well, God had always told his people, you're different. He chose Israel out of all the nations in the Old Testament way long ago. He chose his people. He said, you're different. You're my special people. I didn't choose you because you're stronger, better looking, whatever. I chose you because you're weak. And through you, I'm going to demonstrate my power. Through you, Israel, I'm going to bless all the nations. Remember, if you're familiar with the Bible, sounding familiar, Israel was supposed to be a river, the Mississippi River. And God's sitting up there in Minnesota at the headwaters, saying, I'm going to send barges of compassion and mercy and grace and blessing and the lifting of burdens all down that river. And people in Louisiana and Indiana, everywhere, they're going to receive this grace through you. You're a river. And he said, I'm going to mark you out as my special people. You're going to look, even physically look different. The men of you are going to be circumcised. You're going to bear the mark of being cut off and set apart as different. Uh, you're going to have dietary laws, right? Food is a huge part of culture, right? If you've ever traveled abroad, it's the first thing you notice. You're going to have a special food culture. You're not going to eat what the nations eat. Not No pigs, no pork chops, no bacon, no shrimp. That's why this dream is very significant. And the Jews took all of this, God's people, and initially I bet it was pretty good. They're like, okay, message received. Give it a month. Give it a year. What do you think happens when sin gets a hold of how special they are and distinct and different? It's not just that you've been set and set apart. They think they've heard God say you've been set above. It's not just that you're distinct. It's that you're better. Multiply that by a thousand years. That's how the Jews at the time of Jesus would not set foot in Samaria, would not set foot on Gentile land, would never go into a Gentile's house, would never eat with them. It's why they wanted to crucify Jesus when he ate with Gentiles. They couldn't fathom it. For Jesus to eat with a Gentile is to switch teams. God is on our side. God thinks like I do. He votes for who I do. What are you doing going over there with those people? And it was all subconscious. Nobody knew what was really going on. They weren't aware of it. Even when Jesus calls them out on it, they're not aware of it. So these cultural markers, the dietary laws, circumcision, cleanliness laws, all of these things were meant to simply communicate to Israel, you're different because I have a different purpose for you. You're going to be priests. You're going to bless the world. They turned it into cultural uh, superiorities. I'm different than you, which means I'm better than you. And so they avoided all contact with the Gentiles. Anybody different than them saw right through. They walk into a room. By the way, I should say, we know a lot of them were polite. They were polite. So when the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan walked by the dude in the ditch, I bet they prayed for him. I bet they said, uh, Lord, be with you. I bet they said all, I bet they had an arm's length, polite, casual relationship. And I bet they felt so good about themselves when they walked past and said, I have Gentile friends. And they, they felt superior as they walked past, not giving any aid, but had a polite arm's length relationship because they really didn't believe this guy's worthy of my time. And I really didn't believe there was any opportunity for a meaningful relationship with this person. So let me bring us back into the equation. We are just as prone as... These Christians in Jerusalem, to elevate our home culture, uh, to put it on a pedestal, and to look down at everybody else from it, and to subconsciously assume God only saves people like me. And it's not just that. Um, it's not just that I believe the right things, but I'm on I'm on the team that is clean, and everybody else is dirty. Everybody else is corrupting or corrupted, and. I would bet, it's 2019, I would bet there's not overt, blatant racism in any of your hearts or prejudice about a certain people group or socioeconomic group. But this kind of stuff, I think it fits on that label. Maybe it's not racial for you, but maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe it's Greeks at UGA, they're so different, you just can't figure it out. Or Greek Christians, you're like, is it just an inch deep? How do they live in that culture? Or maybe you're the Greek and you look at you know, the RUF person or the, whatever other ministry you go to, and you're like, it would be so nice to have six days a week to just be around Christians all the time. And you diminish them. And you dehumanize them. And you don't see them as people. It's not just that they're different than me. They're worse than me. They're lower than me. So again, what happens? Because we said we wanted to talk about two things. Understand the, the power your culture has over you. It really influences you. I hope you see that now. But the other thing we said we we're going to talk about is if you are connected to Jesus, expect him to mess with your culture. Expect him to get up in its business and to fiddle around with it and expect interruptions and bumps and turbulence to happen and, and challenging calls. Expect those to happen because of what happened historically this day. This dream, it seems like you know humanity's best dream ever, bacon and pork chops descending from heaven and God commands you to eat but it's, now you know the significance of it. He's saying, Peter, for the longest time, the way that I've been working through my people is for you to be distinct. Not anymore. I am, I am sending the squad off the field and into the world. And these things, these things are evaporating. These distinctions that I had over you are evaporating. And so the Spirit says to Peter, go to Joppa, go to Jaffa. And meet a guy named Cornelius. And the Spirit tells Cornelius, go send for a guy named Peter. And he works in these lives. So what does it mean when God begins to redeem or renew your culture? Well, the word that I think we can apply here not, is not, um, not too foreign to you. It's multicultural, diverse, Right? And it's a word that, like, right now it's an easy word. It's a, it's a cheap word. It's a nickel word. We all want it. We all love it. We all talk about it. It's sexy. It's romanticized. It's idealized. But we see in this passage, and in many before it, if you've been here, that diversity, but a diverse and a multicultural church is a frustrating church. It's a hard church. It's a church filled with misunderstandings. Like, why are only the Jewish widows getting the, the bread? And all the Greek widows are not. So it's a frustrating and complicated church. It's a multicultural church. And diversity and having a bunch of different cultures in a confined space together, as I opened and talked about just two people with different cultures, very similar cultures in the same room is very hard. Imagine every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every family background, every intelligence level, every ambition level and you put them in the same room and you say hey you're family now your brothers and your sisters one lord same need of jesus same reception of god's grace what happens there culture clash culture clash happens right that's what i said misunderstandings have to be worked through toes get stepped on and have to be talked about tensions have to be lovingly navigated Frictions have to be tolerated. Disagreements have to be graciously dealt with. Dostoevsky writes in Brothers... I can't even pronounce it. Drew, where are you? How do you pronounce it, Brothers? Whatever. Karamazov uh, wrote, Love and practice is a dreadful thing compared to the love in dreams. Differences, diversity, multiculturalism is a beautiful thing in dreams. It is dreadful in practice, beautifully dreadful, very costly. I've shared this story with you before, and I'm not going to go into a lot of depth in it, but uh, this all became really real for me where I was before I got back to Athens in New Mexico. I did about five years with RUF out there. I loved every minute of it. Um, the culture of New Mexico State, is 30, uh, the campus is 30 minutes north of Juarez, nor- north of the Mexican border. The, the campus is 65% Hispanic. RUF, when I got there, was maybe 5% Hispanic. And so uh, and Anna and I were like, we got there, and we're like, this is just like UGA. This is easy. And so, again, not conscious of our culture, we're like, we're so compatible here. This is great. I love all these people, and they were wonderful people. Well, about a year, year and a half in, the first time I started to realize things were getting mixed up, is through complaints, gracious complaints. No one was firing missiles at me, but they were saying things like, I don't feel like the people in RUF are as deep as they used to be. I don't like small groups anymore. People don't seem to be sharing as much. I just don't feel like the the community is as rich as it used to be. And as a new campus minister, I'm thinking I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. I'm killing this thing. Awesome. It only took me a year. I thought it would take me a little bit longer than that. Well, what was actually happening is I realized about a year after this, as I looked up, and I'm like, oh my goodness, RUF is starting to look more and more like New Mexico State University. We weren't trying to do that. I mean, we wanted it. We were praying for it, but we had no strategy. We had no way to know to do this. God did it. But, our, but the, the ministry itself becomes about 50-50, kind of Anglo-evangelical background, Hispanic-Catholic background. And a mixture of people who had been converted and knew Jesus and people who were seeking or curious or didn't know him. And you know what was going on in those small groups and in the culture and the community? Culture clash. Anglo evangelicals wear their emotions and their hearts and their spiritual condition on their sleeve, and they talk about it all the time because they've been trained since they were little kids. When you're in a Bible study, share your struggles. Not so, and I know I'm painting with a wide brush, not so. Not so with a lot of Hispanic Catholics. You talk to your family about that, if even that. You talk to a priest about that. Not a stranger in someone's condo. That's what was happening. So RUF was at a crossroads, and we had decisions to make. Every individual in the ministry had a decision to make. People made different decisions. Will you lean in? And will you, will you do the hard work of loving someone whose world you don't understand? Your way feels right Our way of worship feels right. Our way of small groups feels right. Will you persevere in that and listen long enough until you can see maybe their way is right? Maybe it has value. Or will you say, This is really hard. I just don't feel it anymore. I don't feel the feels anymore. I'm out of here. Both happened. But what happened for those who stayed is I think for the first time we learned what love really looks like. Love is so hard, it is so costly and so strenuous. It takes a lot out of you, and it often, it feels culturally weird because you're setting aside things that make a place feel like home to you sometimes for the sake of relationship. Love also means this, and this kind of Acts chapter 10 church, Jew and Gentile, means this. Those arm's length, distant, polite relationships with people you take one look at, and you think there's no hope for us, there's no future for us, It means you actually catch yourself in that moment and you say, wait a second, Jesus has bent over backwards to bring Jew and Gentile together, to bring every tongue, tribe, and nation under one Lord and Savior, under one Redeemer. And so what it means is if you're a person that I walk into the room and I'm like, I'm going to go say, hey, I'm going to go make you feel at home, but there's nothing in the future for us. It means repent. Why do you think there's nothing in the future for you? Jose was one of my became one of my friends out there. He's a cattle farmer 30 minutes north of Las Cruces. He showed up, he's kind of taking part-time classes in New Mexico State. He shows up, he's in cowboy boots, he's in this giant belt buckle, one-gallon cowboy hat thing, and I'm like, what whoa. And we get to talk and it's like, Jose. And uh, this was where God put the fork on the road, I think, for me and Jose, because to me, I looked that way to him. I wore the same thing. Looked the same way, acted the same way, joked the same way. And these two Christians are looking at each other, sizing each other up, and they have, a, they have a decision to make. Will we lean in? Will we see past the external cultural differences? Will we love each other? Will we assume maybe Jesus is up to something here? The way Cornelius should have assumed about Peter, the way Peter should have assumed about Cornelius, Maybe the Spirit's working in this guy's heart 30 miles away. Maybe he's working in his heart 30 miles away. And you persevere through it. We had a decision to make. Jesus, I think, is saying in this passage, you all have decisions to make. If you want to be a part of his church in this new humanity, that's what it's going to look like. Be careful with the ministries you pick, the churches you go to, because a lot of times culture is driving that. We walk in, we don't feel it, we leave. We leave scrutinize why you leave, scrutinize why you stay, scrutinize why you sit where you sit in RUF, why you don't go on conferences, why you don't go tonight at the farm. Scrutinize why. Were your people not there? Are your people not on your row? Friends, this is where things get real. And you look at your heart and you say, Jesus, give me a new culture, change me. Friends, the way he's going to change you is the people on your row. He has already plugged you in to a multicultural, I'll use culture with a little c. We want to grow. We want to become multicultural with a big C, right? We want to look like UGA. We want to look like Athens. But we got to start with each other who are maybe one degree off. If we can't do that, this room will always look like this. Are you up for this? This is where Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, is taking his church. If you're up for this, you're in for a wild and fun and adventurous ride. If you're not up for this, it's going to be a hard slog every step of the way because he will get up in your business and he will fiddle around with these things. I want to end with a quote from Brennan Manning. He wrote, Ragamuffin Gospel. I haven't read the whole book and, you know, I can't say whether I'd recommend the whole book, but I recommend the introduction. (laughs) Because he said, who is the gospel for? Here's what you share in common with that person on UGA's campus that you look and you're like, there is no, nothing in common here. Especially if they're a Christian. You say there's just nothing. Well, here's what you do have in common. You both share this. Who's the gospel for? It's for the bedraggled and the beat up, the burned out, the sorely burdened, the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of Amazing Grace. It's for the inconsistent and unsteady disciples. It's for the poor, the weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for earthen vessels who shuffle along all day long on feet of clay. It's for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It's for smart people who know they're stupid and honest disciples who know that they're scalawags. That's what you share in common with any other Christian of any other age, of any other ethnicity, of any other class, of any other year at UGA or UNG or Athens Tech. You share that in common, friends. Any guy in the room, girls, girls, any gu- uh, guys, any girl in this room right now, you have all of that in common with her. That's the basis of us coming to each other in love and relating to each other. Let's pray. Jesus, reshape all of us. We know culture is not a bad thing. It actually is, it's a glorious thing. You know, the nations will parade before you in that day when you make all things new and you will show off their glory. But sin has made us exalt our culture over everybody else's and say, it's the only way, it's the only one. And we don't just see our friends and our brothers and sisters as different, we see them as bad or less. And we want to repent because you don't see them that way. We want to see them as you do. We want them to see us. We want, I want them to see me as you do. As one you love. As one you care for, one you remember. We pray you'll make this true in your name. Amen.